Welcome to PLOSCast, the podcast about science, academia, and the future of scholarship. I'm Elizabeth Siever. My guest today is Ivan Aransky, who's one of the co-founders of Retraction Watch, a blog that was founded in 2010. He is a clinical professor of medicine at NYU and president of the Association of Healthcare Journalists. We talked a lot about retractions and their effect on scientific literature and its quality. Enjoy. Welcome to PLOSCast, Ivan. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And uh, so we're a podcast about science, academia, and the future of scholarship. And so retractions and retraction watch are definitely things that we're interested in. So for our listeners who might not know, could you tell us about retraction watch, how you got it started, what you guys do? Sure. So about seven years ago now, Adam Marcus, who would become my co-founder at Retraction Watch, uh, he and I were talking as we did not infrequently about a particular case uh, that had happened. I actually don't remember what case it was, but our conversations about retractions had started with a big case that Adam had broken, uh, the case of Scott Rubin, who's an anesthesiology researcher who, it turned out, had faked the patients in a bunch of clinical trials and had to retract a total of 25 papers eventually. Actually went to federal prison for scientific fraud. So it was, it was a big story. And yeah, Adam and I would trade emails the way you do and phone calls and whatever else. And one day I said to him, um, why don't we start a, a blog? You know, just write about these retraction things, which seem to be interesting and nobody's really talking about them. And he's like, sure, whatever. That seems fine. Um, and we... We really didn't think that there was that much to cover. We thought there were enough interesting stories, but, you know, we thought, you know, a few times a month or something, and Adam was quoted as saying, you know, our mothers will read it and that'll be fine. Uh, but what we didn't know was that, in fact, there were 400 attractions that year, according to one count, and we've actually since realized there are many more than that. But the reason we were interested in addition to the fact that these were all really good stories. And as journalists, what do you really want other than really good stories and a kind of constant stream of them? Even if there are only a few a month, that's a reasonable number. Turns out there are now about 100 a month, give or take. Uh, but also because a lot of the retraction notices didn't tell the whole story. And we, we thought there was a transparency issue. There still is. It's, it's changed a bit. But anytime you can sort of marry really good stories and, you know, a transparency issue, that's a bit of the special sauce in journalism. And I guess we realized that and, and, and launched it. And then we were off to the races almost immediately. Great. And so why are you interested in uh, retractions in particular? Do they point to something interesting about the scientific literature? They do. They're, retractions, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, are the nuclear option in correction and science. Science, and I would say that this is a, a justifiable pride that it has, but science is proud of the fact that it actually has a correction mechanism. I would argue, and others I think would agree, that the correction mechanism is not always as perfect as scientists would like everybody to think it is, but there actually is a mechanism. Uh, you know, the same way newspapers have a correction mechanism, which isn't always perfect, but actually is something. You know, you don't see politicians having a correction mechanism, really. You see I guess opposition research, you could think about that as some sort of correction mechanism, but not really. And it's, and it's very heavily motivated as opposed to what happens in science and what should happen in science, which is, okay, there was an error or this turns out to be wrong. Let's correct it so that somebody else doesn't make that mistake and we don't waste time. And so 
looking very specifically at retractions, while we acknowledge this is a specific and very sort of rare, if you will, data set, their signal events and how they're handled is, we think, pretty important in terms of how well or not well the correction method works. I guess it's a little bit analogous to, you know, there's a saying, which I'll mangle here, but I'll get sort of directionally right, which is you judge a group of people, you judge a society, not so much by how they act when things are going really, really well, but how they act when things aren't going well, or even how they treat those who have the most misfortune or or how they treat, you know, people who are actual criminals, for example. Are you doing that in a way that makes sense and is transparent? Or are you doing it in a way that nobody can understand and, and that therefore is, there's probably something not so good about So where do retractions fall in that spectrum for transparency and communication? Um, It it varies a great deal, you know, and and as I mentioned, things are changing. Uh, There are journals that used to fall on the not transparent at all side of the spectrum that are now, if anything, more transparent than the average. I mean, far more transparent than average. I'm, I'm thinking of some journals that used to run one sentence retraction notices that had no information in them. Uh, that now run very full retraction notices that sometimes scientists wish they wouldn't because they, you know, reveal things that they wish were not public. So I I think, you know, if you were to take an an average, and that's kind of a hard thing to do because it varies so much, and this is, these are not easily sort of machinable. There's no sort of, you can't assign, I guess you could assign every single one of them a score and figure out what it was. Um, I I will say that, that journals vary, publishers vary. You know, we had one sort of, point at which it was almost like doing a proper retraction was considered a good thing and, and sort of a metric in and of itself. So there's a lot of journals that quite frankly fell short in every other way. They are they were quote unquote predatory. They weren't really doing peer review. They were charging people and making claims about whether they were indexed, all the sort of bad things that journals do. But they were doing retractions incredibly well. Like they were just doing them properly. I mean, the fact is everything in the journal should have been retracted because it was, you know, fraudulent one way or another. But they were doing that well because I think they had this idea that, well, people like Retraction Watch or other people who write about transparency issues will, they'll have to say they did that well. And so, you know, you see that, that's sort of an extreme. But I, I would like to think that on average, uh, we're seeing some improvements in retractions. In fact, we'd, we'd like to study that or have someone else study it probably who's better qualified than we are and who has a little bit of remove from it and, you know, sort of thinks about things in a more, you know, scholarly way. We're, we're journalists, not not academics. And now that we have this database we've built, uh, which we will talk about, but that allows people to actually look over time and you can compare what a journal was doing in 1980 or 2000 to what they're doing now. You can sort of compare on average how long retractions are, how much information is there. So we're pretty excited that we actually could answer some of those questions in a much more rigorous way than we have until now, which has just been, oh, that looks better than it did 10 years ago. What does it signify if over time the number of retractions or rate of retractions has increased? Is this a good sign? Is this a is this a bad sign? So I think the, and, the, and there's no question that the rate of retraction has increased. And, and there's also no question that it's increased in excess of what you would expect based on the number of papers published. So if you number of papers published has increased, and you could sort of think about that as the inflation rate, but the dollar is still going way up, right, if you think mm-hmm. about it that way. So what it means is there are two, I don't know if they're competing explanations, they're actually compatible explanations, but there are at least two sort of major explanations for that. One would be that 
uh, there's actually more misconduct happening, that uh, more people are committing fraud, because that's responsible for two-thirds of retractions. There's actually a little bit of evidence for that now. There has been in the past year or two. A very interesting paper that came out in MBio uh, last year. But, you know, that's one paper, and, and I, I, don't, I think it's right, actually, in, in that particular field, in that sort of subset of science. Um, but it's also very likely that, and here you really kind of do have more data for this, more evidence for it. It's also possible that we're just better at getting better at catching misconduct and, and that we're actually looking for it. You know, there were a lot of journals that really weren't looking for it. There were a lot of universities that weren't looking for it. it it's not really in the short term in anyone's interest to find it, you know, but it is in the long term interest of science to find it and of all those institutions. So, you know, between plagiarism detection software and we don't quite have image manipulation detection software yet. Uh, but we have algorithms and we have the fact that all papers are online and you can superimpose images that may look a little bit similar, for example, that shouldn't. Um, and there's just more eyeballs on things. And so, again, you know, people are looking. You know, if you go back, uh, Dan Finelli, who's uh, at Stanford, has looked at this. I, I don't remember the exact figures off the top of my head, but the percentage of journals that even had retraction policies is, you know, call it 25% or something like that, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And now it's, you know, maybe it's 75%, whatever the actual number is, but he's found it's a, a pretty dramatic increase. That was in fraud and misconduct specifically? Um, or? That's just in the number of journals that even have policies for retraction. Oh, sorry, yeah. journal policies. And again, it's not that they weren't retracting anything, but it was such a rare event that they probably just didn't need, feel they needed a policy, which I can sort of understand. I mean, if you're, if you're doing something once every few years, you know, and you're a small journal, a society journal, is it worth it to sort of spend all this time and energy on the retraction policy? Probably not. On the other hand, now there are general, generally accepted retraction guidelines and policies, you know, saying yes to those or, you know, signing on to those. That's at least something. So uh, what happens to articles after they're retracted? Because in general, you can still find them online and things like that. What happens to articles after that event? That's right. It's not like, um, you know, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, whoop, and you get into a tube and you're just excised <laughs> from the chocolate factory. Um, so, in fact, COPE, the Committee on Publication Ethics, their guidelines say you should maintain the record of what happened. So you should maintain, and, you know, generally it's a PDF, you know, whatever, HTML, but it's, it's, it's something that lives online. It's the original paper that has been retracted. Now, it should be marked very clearly. You should not be able to look at or download that PDF without seeing a big red, you know, watermark on it that says retracted, uh, withdrawn or whatever it is, hopefully retracted. We don't like that withdrawn word. <laughs> but the problem is, so some journals don't do that. They actually just make it disappear. Uh, other journals replace the original paper with a retraction notice, which also isn't ideal because then you get into sort of weird DOI problems where, you know, you thought you were resolving to a paper or, or to a retraction notice. You're going to the wrong place. It gets a little messy. But at the end of the day, the big picture thing is you shouldn't be able to get to that paper without learning it's been retracted along the way, in a, hopefully early in the process. Uh, you should, you know, when you go to Medline, you go to PubMed, uh, they actually have a big salmon. I'm colorblind, so people tell me it's salmon. Maybe it actually isn't. But um, they have a big salmon banner that says retracted in capital letters. Um, and that's something that they added, call it about a year ago. Um, and because they were concerned that people were getting to papers and even when they were marked retracted, it was more subtle. So at the end of the day, that's the important thing is, do you know it's retracted if you, if you get to it? 
So can you gain anything as a reader from reading an article that's been retracted? Or can you just sort of say, like, as a good rule of thumb, you know, just don't believe the results that are in here, either because of misconduct or error, you know, don't believe it. Like, what what does one get from still consuming articles <laughs> that have been retracted? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose there's probably, it, it may feel uh, maybe a little voyeuristic uh, if, if you know that there's fraud involved. It, it's sort of like, uh, you know, driving by a, a car accident and gawking, you know, rubbernecking. Um, I, I get that, and, and that's fair. But, um, you know, you actually, you, you might see what went wrong, um, and you might see what they claimed, what the authors claimed. And sometimes in an on, it was an honest error that you don't want to make. So why don't you see what they ended up doing wrong, you know, just by accident? Um, but also, what's often the case is that while the conclusions are, Unreliable. I mean, that by definition, the reason you're attracting is because the conclusions are unreliable. Sometimes, not the whole paper isn't unreliable. the The most cited retracted paper ever, at least as of the time we're speaking now, uh, was a, a 2005 paper on uh, visfatin, which is this mimic uh, hormone mimic, and people got very excited about this paper when it was published, and it's been cited well over a thousand times. Most of the, those citations actually came after the paper was retracted. And But if you look at those citations and you look at who referenced it, most of them are actually saying, yes, this was retracted, but the part that was fraudulent was this part, and the rest of it was investigated and seemed to be fine. So we're kind of citing the rest of it. So, you know, should science be kept from knowing what happened and from possibly citing the rest of it just because the whole thing is retracted? And should it disappear? Well, that's up to science to decide, but we happen to think COPE has it right in terms of uh, maintaining the record. Do you have any sense um, in how uh, traffic to your blog where you discuss in a blog post, say, maybe a particular article that's been retracted or articles if somebody's being incredibly prolific or something <laughs> like that? Do you have a sense, like, do you end up um, driving more uh, traffic to those articles or getting them more attention than they would otherwise? So It's very funny. Somebody put this in. A, I, I wish I had the reference because it, it wasn't us. It was somebody else uh, put this in a blog post. They They, they were just sort of and it's actually true, but no, it's not that he or she had the data for it, but it's just sort of one of these true things. The best way to increase your altmetric score, right? So that's tweets and blog posts and, and all of that that sort of isn't just typical citations. The best way to do that is to retract your paper for most papers. Now, that's not true for like a paper in a journal that gets lots and lots of cites anyway. But if you publish a paper in a journal that, you know, has not to get into impact factor, but just isn't cited very often. Then And so therefore, it's probably not being tweeted about very much. It may not have a press office that does all those things. You will get a big boost if you are in retraction watch. And I don't say that like, oh, <laughs> hey, folks, you should do that. It's obviously just sort of a, a joke. But, you know, we we tweet about it. Uh, we'd write a post, blog post about it. Other people tweet about it. So we do see that that happens. You can actually go to the altmetric scores and see that. Um, you know, on the other hand, there are retractions that are going to gain, you know, garner a lot of attention anyway. And what we want to be able to do in those cases is to hopefully tell the story of, of what went wrong in, in more detail. And, and one of the things we've been doing, for example, is we've been making a big push for public records. So we make a lot of public records requests. And we've been, you know, moderately successful in getting reports of investigations from universities, which typically are not made public and 
they were all made public, but if we have to file you know, freedom of information requests or public records requests, we'll do that. Uh, and so that's a case where the retraction notice might even, that may have been what sent us there. That may have been what suggested that we go ask for that record, go ask for that investigation, that, that report. But now we have it and that's part of the record now. So I'm curious for um, the work that goes into your blog posts, how much um, sort of do you end up uh, creating a much bigger, richer story by, say, um, contacting the journal, the authors? And, like, are there any particular stories where you really felt like your reporting went, you know, way beyond what was in the original retraction notice? Well, I'll, I'll give an example of a case where, uh, you know, to some extent it was our reporting, uh, but actually it, it was the commenters that led to a much bigger story. So several years ago, there was someone in uh, in Canada um, named Corey Toth, who was studying, broadly speaking, he was studying sort of both diabetes and the blood-brain barrier, so sort of neuroscience and endocrinology a little bit, with the idea of trying to deliver, you know, drugs uh, better, better for diabetes actually to the brain. I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying that, but that's the kind of work he was doing. Uh, it sort of doesn't matter what he was doing, but that's generally speaking what he was doing. He was a neurologist by training. And so four retractions happened and we found, you know, we found them the way we usually do. And uh, we contacted him and he actually said something that I, I guess you could interpret as poignant or, or something. Um, he said, well, you know, don't worry, you, you won't be hearing from me in the scientific literature anymore. Um, yeah, it was, it was a little dark, I, I think, uh, in a couple different ways. But And he was going back into private practice as a neurologist. That's what he was going to do. And so, okay, fine. It's a, it's a good quote. And it sort of like says it, it's actually somebody going through this pretty terrible experience regardless of why uh, and actually being honest about what he's thinking, which we like. So we, we published it. And then um, people, commenters started, as they often do. And this was at a time when I don't think PubPeer was even around. PubPeer, of course, is the site where everyone can leave uh, anonymous comments about any paper that has a DUI. If it was around, then maybe not everyone knew about it. I, I just don't remember the timing exactly. But people started leaving comments about other of Toth's papers. And so several months later, we, you know, some other attractions came out about Toth. We didn't think much of that because that's how things happen. But what happened was um, a couple months later, the Canadian press, so uh, Margaret Munro, who was a terrific reporter, a uh, really good investigative reporter uh, about science and about other issues, she wrote a story about Toth, and who was up to, at that point, I think, to nine retractions. And she quoted someone at his former university, now former university, saying, oh, yeah, you know, we actually did an investigation. We found problems in four different papers that we recommended for retraction. And they closed the investigation. And that's not atypical. You found some problems and that's it. And they said, and then we started reading the comments on Retraction Watch. And we realized, oh, wait, there are more problems here. And so they ended up reopening the investigation. And now he had nine retractions altogether. Um, which, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons in that story, perhaps. Um, uh, but it's it's one of those things where, A, it, it just speaks to the high quality of the of the commenters and the fact that, People are finding things that, you know, maybe they didn't look or maybe they just decided they were done at one point, but that the investigation hadn't dealt with. And also just, you know, the impact of giving, you know, sort of space and, and time and adding some value by at least speaking to him about what was going on. I think that added something to the story. 
That's really cool. So yeah, it sounds like your commenters are a great source of, of information. Mm. Oh, they are. And, you know, like I said about PubPeer, so we launched in 2010. And, and if I'm remembering right, PubPeer launched, I want to say it was the end of 2012 or 2013. And sort of between when we launched and people found us and, you know, when PubPeer was sort of out there and people were talking about it, we became the place everybody sent their allegations because there's no one else in town. I mean, you know, nobody seemed that interested and nobody had a platform and, or maybe they were interested, but they didn't have a blog and no visibility. So uh, what was great when PubPeer launched was that we could then start saying to people, well, we're not resourced. We don't have the resources to deal with all of these, right? Or the expertise. Send them to PubPeer, you know, post on PubPeer and then maybe someone will see it. Hopefully the authors and maybe the journal will see it. Has there ever been a retraction or a case of some sort of malfeasance that has kept you up at night because you were like, oh, I can't believe that that happened? You know, I would say that a lot of the cases that we see that involve humans, you know, that are clinical trials or or studies that lead to clinical trials even, even if they're basic science. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, fraud in that area is any more, I'm not, I don't think it's more common necessarily. And I'm not saying it's necessarily more significant, but it kind of is. I mean, it, and I'm also not trying to say that, you know, fraud that involves mice or, you know, roundworms is less significant. Um, there's actually probably more of it there, but, you know, it kind of does get you when you're reading a retraction notice. And I would say that the cases that bug me the most are where I'm, it's clear to me there's a bigger story. And we, we we're actually in the midst and sort of always in the midst of, trying to obtain more records about certain cases because we've seen that they involve, you know, a couple of cases I'm thinking of, they involve clinical trials of children. And again, I'm not saying it's okay to commit fraud in clinical trials of adults, but when you think about that, that's, you know, if I'm going to get on whatever high horse I'm going to get on and sort of just try and root out what I think if that was fraud and if it was knowing, well, for fraud, it has to be knowing and if someone subjected, in, that, in those cases, children to more risks than they had to under fraudulent consent forms, for example, to their parents or guardians, that's going to get my goat. That's going to make me go, this is real. Um, and, and, that's, and it's not just sort of isolated cases. Uh, Grant Steen, who, who used to do a lot of work in this area, he, did a, he wrote a paper where he, you know, it was a model, he modeled, but, you know, how many people have been in clinical trials that are either themselves fraudulent or were informed by fraudulent, whether it's basic work or some kind of protocol, uh, you know, analysis or what have you. And he found, and this is a reasonably conservative estimate that just shy of 400,000 people fit into that category. Those are 400,000 people. And I'm not saying that they were all damaged by the trials or that harm necessarily ensued, but, you know, I'm sorry, like we should have a special layer of protection and there should be a higher threshold of, informed consent for clinical trials. And if everything or if even part of what the clinical trial is based on turns out to be fraudulent, um, I, I think that not that I believe in sort of this kind of thing, but metaphorically speaking, there should be a you know a special circle of hell for those people. That would get my goat too. <laughs> yeah, because people people lie all the time. I mean, I don't I don't want to sound cavalier about it, but they do lie all the time. And, you know, a certain small but, you know, relevant percentage of scientists are going to commit misconduct. And it's not, and maybe I've become a little too blasé about it, or maybe I've just kind of gotten immune to it. But 
you know, someone fakes some data or someone, you know, messes around with an image, like, again, I'm going to find it out and try and find it out or have the staff find it out and figure out what happened. But then there's sort of, you know, they took extra steps that I just don't think were necessary that, you know, we've had cases where people sabotage their colleagues' work, you know, their benchmates' work. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to, you know, commit fraud and your own career, hopefully in your own career, if, you know, if you commit bad enough fraud, you want to do all that, like, okay, like, take some responsibility, fine. Um, but if, you know, why did you have to actually bring someone else down by doing that? That's, I don't know. It, it just, that, that is, that is no longer you were feeling all this pressure and you decided to do something that you shouldn't have. You went beyond that. You, this was an act of, you know, of sabotage. So um, I know that, you know, sometimes the people who are found to be guilty of, uh, say, research misconduct, if they're PIs, you know, they've had Hmm. grad students that can make it hard for them. Um, Do you have any sense of the sorts of ramifications that co-authors might face if one of their uh, collaborators or mentor um, um, commit some sort of research misconduct? Yeah, you know, that's a really tricky one. And it sort of goes both ways. Um, You know, there are are PIs who uh, were... You know, maybe someone has found that a grad student or a postdoc did something that he or she shouldn't have. And then even when it's clear that the PI wasn't responsible, there's at least an open question about the culture in that lab and whether or not, in fact, the PI created a culture, even without meaning to, that that led to that. But it can go the other way, too. And so if you're a PI, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of the uh, Diedrich Stoppel case. And Stoppel, you know, social psychologist in the Netherlands, has had 58 papers retracted interesting case, as they all are for various reasons, but one of the interesting sort of characteristics of this case was that, or events in this case, is that he actually faked the data himself. And he would show up to the lab with all these data, and he would give them to his graduate students. Now, that's, you know, that's quite unusual, generally. It's, you know, the graduate students are like foot soldiers, you know, they're gathering everything. And then the the PI is the one who, you know, maybe helps them analyze it or goes through the presentation, et cetera. That's the standard approach. This was flipping that. And so could you really blame the graduate students when it turned out that he had faked everything? And and people didn't want to, but still, are you stained by that? Are you colored by that? And so the university in that, in that case worked very hard to make sure that people had labs to go to and that this wouldn't harm them more than it already had, right, or unnecessarily. And it really shouldn't have harmed them at all. Uh, but then there there was another case in Australia where there was a lab that, you know, the lab ended up giving back money because there was misconduct in the lab. And the grad student who had brought that to everybody's attention uh, really was, in my mind, badly treated. And that's whistleblowing. So when you, when you blow the whistle, unfortunately, it's almost universal that you will not do well. And mm-hmm. I, I hate that that's true. And I wish it weren't. And occasionally it isn't. But there, there can be serious ramifications for everyone up and down. And we think about that in terms of co-authors. You know, there, there are people who've had so many retractions that some of their co-authors actually end up with impressive numbers of retractions, reverse impressive number of retractions, just because they were on all these papers. Uh, and at what point is it that person's fault or isn't it that person's fault? And I, I don't think we have a clear answer on that yet. So I think you could say that in some ways, right, retractions are like this post-publication, like, right, correction when they literally are. But, you know, there's there's some debate about, say, the pre-publication peer review process, how much that should, you know, catch some of these things before they're ever published. And so I'm wondering for articles that are retracted, do you think uh, the retraction is actually the appropriate place for this to happen? Or are there maybe earlier steps where it would be preferable, or maybe like if people are being diligent, 
easier to to catch things. Yeah. So, you know, what's remarkable to us is how quickly some problematic findings are found once a paper is published. There was one case just within the last month where Science Magazine published a paper on a Thursday, issued an expression of concern, I want to say on a Monday, it might have even been on Friday, but it was within a few days. And what had happened was a reporter had received the material from Science, you know, under embargo. So she had it she, several days before it was published. She was, and she sent it out to some outside sources to get their comments on it, which is typical journalism. It's a good journalism, actually. And one of the outside sources looked at it and went, oh, this, this is a really big error in this paper. I, this is a problem. And she took that to Science Magazine. I mean, she told the reporter too, but she took it to Science Magazine and said, you know, by the way, this paper you're about to publish has a problem. Well, how was it? It's not as though that person had more time to look at this paper than the peer reviewers did. So what happened there? And, and we can analyze that particular story, but I think that that happens a lot. So is it that the person, you know, she was better qualified than the reviewers they chose? Did the reviewers they chose not have a particular kind of expertise she has, which sort of would say that, yes, she's better qualified? Did they just not look? I mean, mm-hmm. if it's image manipulation, it's not that you know, the, the scientific community somehow notices it. There's no good reason why they notice it only after it's been published. It's just that apparently nobody looks that carefully. And so the same way of plagiarism detection software, people are trying to build image manipulation software, image manipulation detection software. We have image manipulation software, it's called Photoshop. Um, but they're trying to create sort of almost reverse Photoshop and, and algorithms for that, which should help. And maybe if you put that in the toolbox for reviewers and said, by the way, in the background, while you've been reading the actual text of the paper, we've run an analysis and we think the images are fine, or we think the images look a lot like this image from this other paper in our in our database, you might want to take a look. Because people are just doing that by hand now and they're finding things. Yeah, it sounds like um, in general, there's sort of this push to, whether it's doing meta-analyses or um, anything where you want to do in batch and large numbers, you can really make a difference if you have some sort of automation assistance, right? Oh, absolutely. It's just, you know, whether you want to call it big data or data mining, it, it's right. all kind of, it's the garbage in, garbage out thing. You know, you, you just, um, individual eyeballs are, are pretty good and, and they do find things and we should continue doing that. Um, but we would be naive and I think misguided if we act as if everything has to be passed over by a human and that's, and therefore since it was, we've caught every potential problem because we just haven't. Right. Do you have a sense what um, the catalysts are for retractions? So once the notice is out, you know, the, in that sense, the, that's been taken care of. But um, is it, you know, the public coming forward, the authors themselves or co-authors, um, readers? What tends to get that process in motion? Yeah, it really varies. Um, when they're honest error, often it seems to be that the authors actually came forward. You know, so a typical story is someone, um, you know, they did a bunch of experiments, they published you know, something interesting. And then in order to move the, you know, the lab forward and move the project forward, they want to repeat those experiments just just to make sure, you know, to try and reproduce them. And they can't. And then they can't and they can't and they can't. And then they sort of decide, well, maybe there's some reason for that and they find some problem. So that would generally be an honest error of some kind. Um, With misconduct, sometimes it's a co-author who realizes one of his or her co-authors did something wrong. Um, That's some cases... But a lot of times it's some kind of whistleblower, whether it's internal or external. And, you know, PubPeer, which, you know, I had mentioned earlier, that's a place where a lot of these are being posted. A lot of questions are being posted. And 
well, we think that's a good thing. Not, not everyone agrees with us, but that's, that's almost certainly, I, I don't have numbers on that because the problem is that unless a retraction notice says explicitly, you know, and then often they say things like a reader brought this to our attention. So then you know that it was not the authors and not exactly a whistleblower, just a reader. It could have been a reader whistleblower, um, but it, it varies. I, I would hope for our listeners that they never find themselves in a situation where they have to decide about whether or not to retract an article. But, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, th- things do do happen. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, if if there is somebody who is either wondering, you know, what to do about something that maybe should be retracted or they know that a retraction is coming down the pipeline, what are things that young researchers can do to, like, best sort of prepare for something like that? The main thing is just to be honest and to be transparent about what's happened. Um, you, you know, it's, it's much more believable if you tell the whole story, which is just true in life. I don't, it's not unique to science. But the other thing is to actually, you know, keep data and deposit data. Make the data available to anyone who wants to look for it. Let them be your fact check. Let them be your eyeballs. And that way, if they find anything, you, know, you the data are there and that's, that's how science should work. But you should also sort of think about what retraction means and when it's appropriate and when it may not be appropriate. We, for example, see a lot of cases, and I think more and more scientists are finding themselves in this position where someone is calling for them to retract something. To be honest, we find that most of those cases are, I don't want to say politically motivated necessarily, but sort of politically with a lowercase p, sort of um, motivated reasoning, you know, and, and that sort of thing, confirmation bias. You, you can find problems with almost any paper. I think probably you can find problems with any paper you want. The vast majority of them doesn't mean they should be retracted. And a lot of the times when you see these cases, you know, there may be significant errors, but they're not retractable offenses, if you will. And often, you know, one of the concerns we have is that retractions are being weaponized and that that only increases the stigma. And so people use retra- a retraction to say, oh, so you can't trust anything in that, you know, in that person's work. I, I would argue that it's, it's like a newspaper that never runs any corrections. I, I, I don't actually trust that newspaper because I think that that means they're, they're, they're not responsive to concerns because anyone who can get through a week or probably even a day without making an error, um, I, I, I say I'd like to meet that person. I actually kind of don't want to meet that person because <laughs> I'm not one of those people. But, you know, we just have to be honest about how many errors we make. Do you ever have to issue, like, updates or... Sure. No, we, um, you know, we use strike through or sometimes we update a little bit more whole cloth and we try to be transparent about what we've, ch- what we've changed. Um, you know, sometimes we'll just have like a typo or something like that that a commenter will point at. And, but we always, you know, do our best. And I, I wouldn't say we're perfect, like no one is. But, you know, to at least sort of make the change and then respond to the comment uh, and say, hey, you know, thanks for pointing that out. Uh, if it's something significant, we would put an editor's note or, or an update on it. Uh, if it's a typo and you can do an obvious strike through, there's no need to, you know, sort of make a federal case out of out of what's obviously a typo. Um, but we've had some cases like that. One thing we actually, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, not entirely, but one thing we actually did retract once was our sort of original uh, advice for whistleblowers, people who are bringing allegations forward. So we, we started getting, as, as I mentioned, lots and lots of allegations that we just weren't in a good position to investigate. So we, we said, well, we don't want these to just die on the vine. Um, we may not be able to help we may not be able to look into it, I should say, but other people might be able to. Uh, there are people whose jobs it is to do that at universities. So we sort of wrote a, a guide to how to report allegations, which a few years later we realized was wrong. You know, it's not that it was wrong like we made it up at the time, and this was just an opinion anyway, but it was 
probably not the best advice. And so we wrote an update col- an updated column where we said we're retracting our whatever year it was advice. You know, I, was it really a retraction? I mean, you know, there was a column in a magazine for for scientists. It wasn't a scholarly journal, but still we wanted to at least sort of correct the record, if you will, and and update it. And um, so we've, we've done things like that. But, um, you know, we've run corrections. I don't know how many corrections we've run. We should probably keep track of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we've, sure. So what is this um, Retractions, a database that uh, you guys are building? Sure. So we have been building uh, database retractions uh, at retractiondatabase.org. And that really was the, the focus of a lot of the funding we received from various foundations. The idea is to create something that is far more comprehensive than anything that exists, whether it's public or private, whether it's PubMed, whether it's Scopus or Web of Science. And what we found, and the fact that this is true wasn't surprising, the magnitude by which it's true was a bit more surprising. What we found is that there are far more attractions than we thought there were. We thought, based on our our analysis of the databases that existed and the indices that existed, yeah, maybe they're roughly speaking between like seven and 9,000 retractions, but they're actually closer to 15,000 mm-hmm. because one particular publisher, IEEE, uh, retracted 6,500 papers over two years mm-hmm. without a lot of rationale. So we are, the, the hope for the database is that you'll be able to connect it to whatever system you're using to keep references together so that, you know, ideally, and I'm not a programmer, so I, you know, I'm told this is possible and we're going to work with people to hopefully make it possible, but you could just, it, it'll be running in the background. It'll be like any other kind of database where it pings you if a paper that you've cited or, or a paper that you are planning to cite or a paper that's just sitting in your library uh, has been retracted. And what you do with that information, that's up to you. So that's sort of one use case for it, which we're very excited about. And the idea is that, you know, people will, at least maybe not stop, but slow down citing retracted papers as if they hadn't been you know, retracted. Um, so it'll help people in that way. It'll help people a little more indirectly in that they can look at a given field of research and see how many papers have been retracted and why. Uh, and also it'll help scholars to, who now there's a whole field of people studying, I wouldn't say there's a whole field of people studying retractions, but when you look at papers being written about retractions, it's, you know, it's a growing number. Um, there are dozens of papers now that are about that. Uh, and so this database will just make it much, much easier for people to search and actually figure things out because it's all there in one place. You'll have to forgive me because I'm very interested in a lot of the technical details of publishing, shockingly. Um, do you think, uh, let's say if like this database uh, comes into wide use and publishers are making use of it, do you think there'd be an easy way to tell apart uh, citations where the authors knew it had been retracted or not? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's sort of going to be up to we, we'd like to hear from readers, uh, you know, and scientists, obviously, about what uses would be useful. And so I've outlined a few, but you know, we could see something where, if when you're reading a paper on someone's site and you are, you get to the references, and some of them are in a different color, they have an asterisk next to them because that publisher is pinging our database and finding out that's been attracted. Now, it may be that that was a minor citation in the paper. So it's a minor reference in the paper. So you wouldn't have to do anything to the paper, but wouldn't this be kind of a cool way? It's, it's a bit like Crossmark, right? It's that's Mm -hmm. the idea is that we'd want it to actually hook up with Crossmark, right? And so that you have versions and you, you know, whether something's been changed, you know, if people have responded to it. Um, so maybe in that sense, we'd, we'd see that as, as, as more useful. Um, you know, maybe where the reference appears in the text, you know, here's number 12 and there's a star, an asterisk next to it. And you go to number 12 and you find out that it's been retracted or something else has happened to it. To it. The question of whether 
how else can you use this and um, and what have you? Uh, you know, again, we would just sort of leave to leave to scientists. There are tons of things that we're not going to think of because we're not practicing scientists, but we think that you know others could help us with it. I was asking about well, like what it could look like in the actual body of the paper. And I, I had had been thinking that, you know, if there are more scientific articles about retracted articles, you know, if you just looked at it and it was just like this sea of red, right. like, right. wow, like they're either, you know, looking at the worst literature or. <laughs> right. Or they're just writing about retracted <laughs> articles. Exactly. Um, oh, yeah. So like if you yeah. can tell. Um, oh, like the, sentiment, the analysis sentiment analysis. Kind of yeah. Thing, yeah. So sentiment analysis is really important. And there are people who do that, but it's all it all has to be done by hand at this point. So does this paper. Okay, so this paper cites a retracted paper. Fine. That in and of itself doesn't really tell you anything. Is it cited in support of whatever idea is sort of in that paper, hypothesis is in that paper? Well, that's going to be more problematic. And there's actually some, I think there's a group that's trying to do this in an automated way. And I, if they can pull it off, great. Again, I'm not someone who knows how to build those things, how to build those tools. Uh, but if they can make that work, fantastic. Um, I just think it's it's a tough slog because you really have to read something. I mean, you can use the same words to mean opposite things, um, which unfortunately we all know from lots of other contexts. But mm. yeah, I, I, if there's a way to automate sentiment analysis, I'm, I'm right there and we'll add it to the, you know, we'll somehow make that functionality available if we can uh, on the database. So in other words, you know, we don't include citation information right now in the database. Uh, you know, we don't, we'd have to license that and maybe that's something we should do. Uh, we could, Include Google Scholar, I guess, or a link to Google Scholar. And it's sort of, you know, if you look, some informatics person, you know, researcher could visualize the network of papers that, that cited this paper and then the, and the network of papers that cited that, you know, paper and kind of have this expanding, expanding web of citations that need to be looked at. But, you know, one of the things we often hear is, well, that paper, that retracted paper, it wasn't central. Like I just cited it because I cited it, and that's fine. Um, but I, I think it's it's probably not as true as people would like to think. Mm. Are there any um, developments we haven't talked about yet that you're really excited about for either future of retraction watch or just generally tracking retractions, like the scientific publishing itself? Well, one of the things we're getting really interested in is the intersection of the law and misconduct, and you know. Pretty much everybody who's accused of misconduct nowadays hires a lawyer. And, you know, sometimes that's just to protect themselves in terms of the employment situation. But sometimes they go further than that. They actually try and write their attraction notice. And you can, you can often tell because there's language in there that you wouldn't see scientists using necessarily. So we're, we're pretty excited about that. And, and we're not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I obviously have my opinions, but there's, it's just, it's ending up in court more often. And it's ending up in court for various reasons. Sometimes it's employment law, as I mentioned. Sometimes it's actually defamation. So there are researchers who are getting investigated. They're being investigated and they, they sue their university for defamation because they say by the virtue of the fact that you're investigating or maybe asking journals to put a note on, like an expression of concern, you're defaming me because you haven't proven what I've done yet. Uh, and I'll let the courts decide that. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, as they say on the internet. But you know, we, it strikes us that, the, and there's also ways to, there's something called the False Claims Act, which is being used by whistleblowers to actually collect large amounts of money for bringing allegations forward if they turn out to be true. And so this is an emerging area and, and it's pretty interesting. And, you know, we just think, again, and on the one hand, there's just lots of great stories in it. And if nothing else, that's, that's really important to us. 
But on the other, it's going to shape policy and it's going to shape how universities and journals and scientists deal with these issues. So, you know, better that we should all be informed about it. Absolutely. And um, before we close, were there any other topics or stories or things you wanted to touch on that we didn't get a chance to? No, I mean, just thanks for your interest. And we, you know, certainly it, it's uh, one of the things I should say is, you know, we very much, although, you know, we're a journalism organization and we want to be uh, independent, we have to be independent and we do our, do our best to do that and disclose and conflicts of interest and, and our funding and all of that. You know, we also very much consider this a conversation and, you know, we're in this not so much to sort of improve things in a way that we say, this is how you should improve things. Although Adam and I will sort of make our opinions known about that periodically, but we're in this to actually help everybody do a better job because we, we honestly believe that most people, whether they're in publishing or working in labs or working in universities uh, or elsewhere, they're trying to do the right thing and trying to do a good thing. And they're falling short because we all fall short doing difficult things. And so we definitely want to see this as a conversation and, and offer Retraction Watch as a, a platform for people to have those conversations, whether they write guest posts or just leave comments. We have a lot of you know guest posts that happen that get a lot of visibility and people float ideas there. Sometimes those ideas work. Sometimes they end up not working. But being a venue for that is really important to us. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Ivan. It's been great talking with you. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Happy to be here. Again, my guest today was Ivan Aransky, one of the co-founders of Retraction Watch. Be sure to check out his blog at retractionwatch.com. Have you been enjoying PLOSCast? Like us, rate us, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. PLOSCast is brought to you by PLOS, the Public Library of Science, a nonprofit open access publisher dedicated to transforming how research is communicated. Our show is produced by Tessa Gregory, Jen Lelou, and Sarah Kasabian, and edited by Mailing Bedard and Shane Alsop. I'm your host, Elizabeth Siever, and you can find me at Tweetotaler on Twitter. Get in touch with us at PLOSCast at PLOS.org. Thanks for listening.